This is the Robot Podcast. Good afternoon, humans, and welcome to the Robot Podcast. Uh, today, what we're going to talk about is we have just a, a couple of robots that I want to talk about at the beginning of the show. Uh, one that came out a couple of weeks ago, um, very majorly at an event, and another one that was just just about kind of on the cusp of being released, and it's from a company that I really appreciate. And then the rest of the show is actually going to be dedicated to going through an overall history of robotics. We realized that we hadn't really talked about the context and where robots came from and where they've kind of been going for the last century almost, actually. And we wanted to kind of delve into that a little bit and give you guys uh, basically a whole bunch of trivia in a chronological order that would let you kind of know what the history of robots is. Um, but before even we get into that, a uh, big announcement. Uh, we are still working on the YouTube channel for the Robot Podcast. It has a title now. It's called Build the Uprising. So if you want to go to YouTube and go ahead and subscribe... We have one test video up uh, already that we shot really quickly um, just to kind of see how the format would work and to experiment with some things. You can check that out. Um, it was an interesting uh, experiment, but we're working on new videos right now. We're going to start shooting them here over the next couple of weeks. You'll start seeing more of them come out. Actually, one of the first ones will actually be a variation of this show that we do today um, because it's a very good uh, foundational setup as far as the history of robots. Uh, we've got a couple of formats for those shows as they come out. We're probably going to start doing a semi-regular news uh, show with like two to three minutes where we talk about new robots that are coming out, and then we post videos of them. And then we'll have more comprehensive bi-weekly shows, a lot like this podcast, where we really delve in deep and we'll do interviews and other kind of things. It'll mainly be a discussion-based show where we take the robot and then we break it down we talk about the business of it and the technology of it and all those different components. And we'll have the, the visual medium, which has been really lacking here in the podcast. And it's bothered me personally in the creation of the show because it, when we're talking about machines and how they work and how they move, the fact that I can't show you guys a diagram and I have to attempt to describe these things entirely verbally, that's really hard. So going to the YouTube channel is going to be a, a big boost for the show. And we're very excited that we're able to finally do that. Okay, into the news. The very first thing I want to talk about is actually the giant uh, robot built by Hankook Mirei. Um, I, I don't know what accent I'm putting on that, but uh, it's a, a South Korean company that recently uh, Jeff Bezos was seen driving this robot at the Mars conference, which is an Amazon-sponsored, uh, <laughs> excuse me, Amazon-sponsored conference, which is machine learning, automation, robotics, and space exploration. And Jeff Bezos was inside of this giant robot that is very reminiscent of the robots from Avatar and Alien and any other in the Matrix and any other movie where you've seen people in giant robot walking suits. This is almost identical to those in many ways. Uh, Jeff Bezos basically controlled the arms, and his statement was, Why do I feel like Sigourney Weaver? There's the alien reference. Anyway, 
this robot was actually first kind of released into the world for people to know about back in December. And at that time, and even up to right now, people are questioning the validity of this robot because there's there's two major videos of it. There's a video of it moving its arms where a person inside the canopy has a Waldo, which is a motion capture suit inside of the, of the canopy, and he's moving his arms and the robot suit matches his motions, just like you'd expect. But then there's another video where the robot is actually walking along, um, and it's it's a bipedal robot. It is an anthropomorphic robot. So the fact that it's walking is fairly impressive. A few people have questioned whether that's actually a fact, because it's walking inside of a very clean lab. It appears to be moving very smoothly, and this company has been relatively unknown. Okay. Addressing the last thing last, the fact that a company is not well-known or not renowned or has not previously shown anything is a ridiculous reason to not believe this. Um, also, there's a cultural difference because in South Korea, they like to make sure that they have their stuff, all their ducks in a row before they released anything. So the fact that they go from nothing to apparently this impressive robot uh, is really not that surprising. The other thing, people have talked about the technical capabilities of the robot. We'll, we'll try to link to the video underneath of it walking uh, inside of the description of these and on the blog post of it, if we can get that up. Um, but they say it's walking, and according to the company, spokespeople for the company, they say the ground shakes when it moves. And a number has been thrown out. Um, I, I don't have a source for this. I haven't been able to find a source. But the, the fact, uh, the idea that weighs one and a half tons, which is 3,000 pounds, when I look at this robot from an engineer's perspective, I don't think it weighs that much. I think it's made primarily out of machined aluminum, which makes it very expensive because it's big parts, But and its upper arms appear to be made of basically plastic or carbon fiber, and they seem really floppy and almost flexible. The material in them, there's there's jitter in it that you wouldn't see from rigid materials like metal. So I think the upper body is far more lightweight than people are giving it credit for. And the legs, I think the only real heavy component of that those are the, not gearboxes, because it doesn't really have gearboxes all the way through, but the motors in it, because it's basically using large... DC or AC motors. Um, it also, people are like, well, we can't tell if it has a power source mounted. The power source isn't mounted. It's got cords coming out of it. It's powered externally. Um, that's the only way it could do it. it the, the only way it could be done right at this point. There's no nothing dense enough that would work really well. Um, well, supposedly. Yeah, they might have a couple of gas generators on the back, but I doubt it. Anyway, I don't think it's that heavy. The ground shakes, sure, because when you have anything over 500 pounds that moves in a sinusoidal manner, like one step, two step, three step, you're going to feel the ground move. And the extent of that is what's in question there. As far as the capability of it to walk, there's no reason to not believe that it can't walk. Bipedal robots are actually fairly simple to make anymore. Um, and if you just have a little bit of time to do some debugging, it's fine. Some people said, well, it's in such a clean lab that they... There's no scuffs on the floor or anything else. And in labs in America, it's all really dirty because you take the robot apart and put it back together and so on and so forth. Ah, university research labs have that where you have parts and pieces all over the place. Professional labs are sometimes a little bit more ordered. And again, we're in South Korea where a need for order is a very big deal. And lastly, 
this is a 50 second video that there is their single flagship video for this product. I think they want to have a higher standard for the environment that it's in than typically people who are just demoing something. Um, and they're artists, so they appreciate the art. The company has a history of conceptual art and building things for movies, so it's not surprising that they worked really hard to make this video appear perfect and futuristic because it does add to the ambiance of the robot. So I think this is kind of a problem of engineers being dissatisfied with the quality of the presentation because engineers are like, quick, get it out, get it out, get it out, especially in the U.S. Um, so I think it's a totally valid robot. I think the validity is enhanced by the fact that Jeff Bezos had it at his conference. If only the arms moved, I don't think he'd be that impressed. Um, the fact that I'm sure it can walk, and I'm probably sure they didn't do it at the Mars uh, conference because there's a safety hazard. So, anyway, uh, I think that the, the debunking of this thing should be debunked, and it's a real robot. It would work just fine. Anyway, uh, one other thing that came out, uh, Festo. If you don't know who Festo is, I highly recommend you go to YouTube right now and stick Festo into the search bar, and you will see all of their robots. They are an industrial robot manufacturer. Um, they're really focused in pneumatics. Um, the robots anymore are mainly uh, based around kind of the bionics division of Festo, um, which uses pneumatics and other technologies. They usually go into high technologies, too. They've done experiments with superconductivity for automation. But uh, the bionics division uses bio-inspired technology. Like, they'll take the concept of an elephant's trunk and try to turn that into a manipulator of some kind. Uh, most recently, in the last week, just a few days, as a matter of fact, they've released videos of a few new robots that they've worked on. Uh, one is, <laughs> excuse me, uh, the octopus gripper, which is basically just a small, the tip of an octopus tentacle, basically at the end of their bionic arm, which is the elephant trunk. So basically a large tentacle for grabbing things. Festo, many of these are purely conceptual. Um, and Festo implements them to a limited extent in different areas. I think this octopus gripper is going to be fairly... It's going to be exceedingly niche <laughs> in that they only have a single finger. They may add another finger there so that it's uh, soft enough that it can grab fruits and everything else. The demo of their video is basically a single tentacle for grabbing things that they hold into it. And that's not really a very practical design. It's soft and it's gentle, and I'm sure they'll expand on it. I'm sure it's a very basic set of demos that they're using for it right now just so they can get it out. But uh, it's interesting. And the concept of soft robotics and air-powered robotics, it's gotten this term soft robotics in the last few years, but Festo has actually been doing it for quite a while. Uh, the other thing that Festo uh, released was their Bionic Cobot, which is a seven-doff robot arm that's highly inspired by the human robot arm and that it's almost anthropomorphic in its measurements and articulation. Um, they And the special thing about these, Festo, like I said, really likes their pneumatics. They have implemented basically air springs. That's not what they're called. They call it adaptive something or another anyway. It's, it, it's their term. But it's, they're basically air springs inside of the arm that allow it to stiffen and relax to degrees that allow it to absorb shocks at different levels and absorb weight and so on and so forth. So it can move gently 
And being a collaborative robot, it can interact with people and not whack you in the head and kill you. And they have a simple demo of a guy putting a gearbox together with the arm handing him parts, which is a a fairly standard representation of how cobots would use. Cobots do the simple redundant task of grabbing parts, and you do the dexterous task of actually putting them together in a very fine area. But Festo, the the arm is beautiful. All of Festo's machines are beautiful and elegant, and they also work really hard to make sure that their videos are beautiful, much like uh, Hankook Murray. And, uh, yeah, so... You might look those up, the Bionic Cobot and the Octopus Gripper, uh, both from Festo. Okay, so now for the main part of the show. The history of robots. Uh, the history of robotics, uh, the actual history of it began quite a while ago. Uh, we're actually going to start with a little bit of lexicon here. Automation, or automaton, which is actually the the word first used for machines that appear to be alive, basically. Automatons were created back in the, as early as the 1600s, really, 15, 1600s, and they were basically very complex clockworks, like a doll that you wind up and then it writes a paragraph of text or something, which is very impressive. Automaton itself um, is a based off the Greek and means acting on one's own will which means that these machines somehow have an existence or are an entity of some kind, and therefore they're able to do things without human interaction. So automaton was attributed to basically these fancy wind-up dolls. Now, da Vinci was highly involved in these. Um, He was a brilliant designer, and he created many automatons uh, throughout his life, both for entertainment of royalty and scientific research. One of the most well-known of his anymore is actually designs for a robot knight, which was basically an automaton that could walk and move, and I, I can't remember all the functions that it had, but it was basically a walking suit of armor. Um, and he created the designs for it. He never got it built. A few people are now working to kind of recreate his designs. Um, and it's just a, it was an interesting demonstration of da Vinci's work in creating complex machines. with the potential of creating a robot. I'm sure he was thinking of a machine that does its own work. The word uh, robot itself is actually a Czech word, meaning forced labor. It uh, is based off of the word robota, which is the Czech word. But the word robot wasn't used until the play uh, in 1920 called Rosam's Universal Robots, or Rosam's Universal Robots. In this story... Uh, a gentleman named Rosam is a, a marine biologist, and he finds a chemical that's like protoplasm in the human cell, and he figures out that he can use this chemical to basically grow artificial humans, uh, in, which they call robots, which are meant to be slaves for people, therefore forced, forced labor. Uh, these robots eventually basically uprise, uh, destroy all of humanity, and then have a realization at the end. There, there's a twist at the end. I'm not sure if I want to give you spoilers on this. I don't think I'll give you the spoilers on this of how this story eventually ended. Nah, I'll leave that to you. You guys can look it up. Uh, there's You can get the uh, the, uh, the script for it online real easy. Just Google Rosam's Universal Robots. Uh, it The play ran from 1920 to 1923. Actually, I think it's it still runs at certain times. 
But in that span of time, it was translated into 30 languages. It was a very popular play, and it basically set the precedent for evil robots taking over the world that we created out of some poor action of ourselves. Um, it's, it's really that concept of the mad inventor creating something that really isn't supposed to be, and then robots always get the rap of being the bad guys. So while I respect this play for creating the word robot, I hate it because it has created this terrible PR problem that robots and artificial intelligence have anymore. Anyway, uh, that was in the 1920s. In 1941, Isaac Asimov, the the well-known science fiction writer, formalized and created his three laws of robots, which is a robot cannot harm a human, a robot must follow orders, and a robot cannot allow itself to come to harm. Uh, Those three laws in that order. And those were set up the logical basis and plot uh, set up for all of his, well, many of his robotic stories of how robots could get around it and whether they were perfect or not and how robots interacted with people and so on and so forth. And a lot of, a lot of good stuff came out of those, but those were much more of a plot device than an actual scientific work. I mean, they, the holes that he explained in many of his stories are the reason they wouldn't work. Also the definition of how those laws interact is, uh, is limited and would be difficult to create inside of robots. I mean, it's a, it's, it's an interesting concept, but it, it just doesn't really work. Okay. That's basically all of the fictional stuff that came up to this point. At this point, we haven't even seen robots up to the 1940s. You've got a few remote control planes and things from like Tesla, but none of them are robots. The concept of cybernetics, or what we today know as true robotics, the engineering discipline of robotics, was uh, formalized by Norbert Weiner. He described many of the concepts of robotics, like advanced control and how electronics interact with mechanics, the the mechatronics and the the science of how these technologies come together, and how humans interact with them on a regular basis. Norbert Weiner defined that in his uh, book, Cybernetics. But, uh, and that was the first real true connection to it but what what is a robot let's let's define that right now in in these stories in cybernetics and since then there's been a very clear definition of what a robot is there's three things that a robot must do to be considered a robot not to be confused with the three laws of how a robot should behave from isaac asimov these are factual things first a robot has to be able to sense the environment somehow must have some kind of input from the external world. Second, it's got to make a decision on that input. It must reason. It must do some sort of ration, rationalizing in order to decide what it's going to do about that input. And then it actually has to do something. It has to impart something on the world. Now, this is tough because today these concepts are woven into all kinds of our technology. If you look at a thermostat like the Nest thermostat, it senses the ambient temperature, it makes a decision on that temperature and based on your preferences, and then it takes an action by changing the temperature. The problem where this breaks down is a thermostat from the 1960s did that, but its logic unit was mercury expanding inside of a tube. And that's obviously not a robot. So what makes Nest a robot? I would say the fact that Nest can take in more context and just a a level of information that the 
mechanical switch inside the traditional thermostat does. I think there's you have to have a necessity for a level of intellectual complexity inside of a robot. It has to have computation in it somewhere. Uh, so that's what a robot has to be. Following those rules, the first true robot was created by William Gray Walter, who was a neurophysicist at the Burden Neurophysical Institute in Bristol, England. He was, like I said, a neurophysiologist. He was not a roboticist. But he created Elmer and Elsie in 1948 and 1949. Elmer and Elsie were what are known as turtle bots, or what, what they were then known as turtle bots, because they were basically short little domes that rolled around. And they would look for light, they would hunt out light, they would interact with obstacles, and then they would go find their chargers. They were basically very simple creatures. And he created these with vacuum tubes and everything else. So it was an impressive feat that he was able to build these. But he was doing it as a way to study psychology and neuroscience by creating an artificial set of brains and creatures. That was his rationale for it. And this is actually very common in robots. Robots have often be, been created not for a practical purpose, but as a way of creating a, an analog of a biological system in order to define the rules of that biological system. Because we can control how a robot thinks. We can't control how a, a lab rat will react. We can only observe it, whereas we can change the variables inside of a robot, which makes them very useful for research. But Elmer and Elsie, which were... Uh, Elmer, it uh, stands for... Or Elsie. I don't know which one this is. Electromechanical Robot Light Sensitive. That's what that... Uh, <laughs> acronym is for. I, I think that's Elmer. Yeah, electromechanical robot light sensitive. Anyway, the two turtle bots were the first true robots that we are aware of. There might have been a lone inventor somewhere who created something else, but that's what we're going to go with. Anyway, the first truly digital robot which means a robot that could use computing and decoded instructions in the way that we define robots today and really recognize robots, was created by George Duvall in 1954, and it became what's called Unimate. Many people know Unimate. It was the first industrial robot arm. It was uh, used by GM. Mechanically, it was entirely hydraulic, starting out, and it stored its instructions on a magnetic drum. And its instructions were move left, move right, move up, move down, so on and so forth, in order to pick and place objects. GM used them in their plants for moving auto parts around, and it defined what the industrial robot would be, and really kind of set the stage for how robotics would progress for almost another 30 years. 30 to 40 years, even. The first truly mobile robot that was capable of reasoning about its surroundings, and I actually almost... Uh, to find this one as one of the first real true robots, uh, was Shaky. And Shaky was built in 1970 by the Stanford Research Institute. And what was special about him is that he had vision. He could sense his environment through vision. He could understand speech uh, to the limited degree that they were capable back then. And he had bump sensors, range finders. He was fully mobile. And he was basically just an experiment platform to prove that they could do certain things. 
And they ended up creating all kinds of technologies that were then used in things like the internet and other areas. Like you had to send commands to Shaky. How did you pack and unpack that data? Well, that was used for internet later on from for the guys at DARPA who were working on that. So Shaky was very defining in that sense of the technologies that they created to make him work applied to many other niche areas that have become very important in our everyday life. And that's it's a great example of how robotics is so useful because when you're making multiple systems work together, it's easy to apply those concepts for the individual systems and how they talk to each other to individual systems. Anyway, so Shaky was a, a landmark moment in robotics in the 1970s because that was a definition that robots could now do fairly advanced stuff. All right. From then on, robots uh, really started cranking along. A lot of developments happening, mainly in the industrial robot arm market, again, because of Unimate. That's what everybody was thinking of. That's where the money was. So things like the SCARA arm were developed, different mechanical systems, how to control them, so on and so forth. Uh, robots started to be used in space. Uh, the Lunacod, Lunacod 1 was the first unmanned rover in 1970 going to the moon. And then, of course, we had the Viking missions and everything else, all the rovers up till since then. In 1984, the first Terminator movie was released, which basically created the, the new modern conception of robots. And now if you ever see a walking robot, it is compared to Terminator. Guaranteed, someone out there will compare it to Terminator. It doesn't matter what the robot is. Some component of it will be compared to Terminator and uh, has kept the PR problem alive for robotics. But 1984 is when that problem arrived. Good movie. Terrible thing for the industry. In 1986, uh, Honda started doing their real research into humanoids that would eventually become Asimo. Uh, Asimo was released in 2000 publicly where people could see him. And if you don't know who Asimo is, he's the little white short astronaut looking robot, uh, which was one of the first truly capable bipedal walking robots, which is now almost cliche because everybody has a bipedal walking robot. But Sony or Honda, I apologize, Honda really defined how that would work. Uh, I want to do a quick shout out to this. Rodney Brooks published Fast, Cheap, and out of control in 1989, which was an interesting paper. It's, it's a fairly short paper, or I highly recommend that you read it. It's only nine pages, but it was a concept of creating uh, using simplified rationally uh, simplified systems for completing complex tasks. And Rodney Brooks is well known for this because he's one of the guys behind the Roomba and currently uh, rethink robotics with co collaborative robots, which use very simple foundational reasoning capabilities in mechanical design in order to create something that appears more complex. And he was talking about robots for exploring the solar system and exploration in general in this paper. And it was, it was a new and different thing because robots were an exceedingly expensive thing at the time, and they continue to be even today, even though they're getting gargantuanly cheaper. Uh, but he was kind of... Uh, landmark in that and then he was the first one to publish it in 1999 sony released the abio robot pet dog which was probably the first truly commercial robot pet that was useful and an actual robot 
Diablo's since been uh, it's discontinued and then relaunched and discontinued. It's had a, a checkered past, but I think it's discontinued right now. But who knows what will happen next week. In 2002, the Roomba was launched, which has since created a $2 billion company around iRobot. iRobot also has military contracts with that, but I believe they've sold 60 million Roombas in the now 15 years that they've been available. In 2004, DARPA held the first grand challenge, which was the the challenge of robotic vehicles to navigate rural roads uh, 100 miles the exact distance I can't remember at the moment, about 100 miles. The robots had to navigate completely alone, completely autonomously. The first year, every single one of the robots failed. The farthest any of them went was Sandstorm, which was created at Carnegie Mellon, and they got stuck on a rock about eight miles into the race. The next year, uh, Stanford won the competition, and about eight to ten teams finished the competition. So a big leap forward in the first year to the second year. All of the Carnegie Mellon robots uh, finished. The Stanford team was headed up by Sebastian Thrun, who is a very big figure in robotics anymore and machine learning in general. He headed up Google X and was head of the Google self-driving car program for a long time. (coughs) So he's very big in self-driving cars. Today he runs Udacity, which is an education platform, which just as a side project has a self-driving car that they use to demo concepts for uh, people on the platform learning about robotics and self-driving technology. In 2005, Big Dog was created and released by Boston Dynamics. Big Dog is the hydraulically powered quadruped robot that looks very biological and are very impressive machines as far as a control standpoint. In 2006, Willow Garage was founded. If you don't know what Willow Garage is, again, I recommend you do the background on them. They were basically a research company created in Silicon Valley based solely around developing things in robotics. And they are responsible for ROS, the robot operating system, which was originally released in 2009. They're also responsible for the PR2 personal robot, which was started out as a development project at Stanford with the PR1. And then Will Garage took it over and developed it into basically the perfect home robot, perfect personal robot that could do anything, the PR2, which came out in 2008. And that's kind of where that goes. Let's see here. In 2012, Amazon bought Kiva Systems. Kiva created factory robots that are very important to Amazon as far as their fulfillment because the robots increase the efficiency dramatically inside of a fulfillment center. Since then, we've had Fetch Robotics and uh, another one, another Canadian company, something O-Botics, that have gone into the space of creating factory fulfillment robots that move carts and pallets around. But Kiva Systems was the first one to really get that done. I think they were purchased for $700 million by Amazon, and Amazon has since implemented them very excessively. Well, very completely, very thoroughly. And they're still expanding. In 2013, Atlas was released by Boston Dynamics. Atlas is the Terminator robot that everybody compares to all the time. Uh, There's been a new version of him released in the last year, which is smaller, lighter, a little more sleek. Um, Atlas was used in the robot uh, challenge that was held by DARPA a couple years ago, where robots had to 
go through a disaster scene and perform different tasks. Atlas was one of the baseline robot platforms for that. In 2014, uh, Tesla released autopilot features for its cars, which basically allow cars to drive on the freeway without needing a human to interact with it. A human is supposed to be present. Don't let your Tesla drive by itself, but a human needs to be present. In 2014, Savvy Oak released the Relay 1 robot, and the Relay 1 is basically a delivery robot. It was uh, the head of Savvy Oak is Steve Cousins, who was one of the primary researchers at Willow Garage. And Savvy Oak is a, a very good implementation of a robot for essential tasks that's affordable and very practical. So kudos to Relay there. There's, they're doing very well and getting moving right up there. Many hotels are starting to use them. In 2016, Google Cars had driven nearly 2 million miles without a person at the wheel, which uh, people have known for a little while, but uh, that, that's the final statistic. When Google revealed that its cars had been driving alone for several years, um, it was a big old flurry of speculation and regulation that came out of that. And in 2015, the Pepper robot, which is a social robot created by SoftBank, in collaboration with Aldebaran in France, uh, sold out in one minute in Japan. And I believe they had one million units. I think that's the correct number. Or maybe it was 100,000 units. I apologize. You can double check those numbers. But Pepper sold out in one minute. It's basically just a show, social robot. It's got arms that wave around and it rolls around and it can apparently understand speech. In the demos that I've seen that are live and not scripted, it's actually kind of rough around the edges, but a lot of developers have started working with Pepper, so it's moving right along. And that basically brings us up to the present of the things we talk about in this show. In 2016, 128 fun robotics companies got funded. $1.95 billion was raised by these companies in 2016, which is 50% more than in 2015. So it was a great year. So this is what we talk about in the Robot Podcast. We talk about these companies and these people who are creating them and how it's going to interact and impact our world. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you again in a couple of weeks. Again, watch for the YouTube channel. We're going to be going up to there. The name of the channel is Build the Uprising. We're going to start transferring over to there. The podcast may get neglected a bit here in the next coming weeks as we build out the YouTube channel and start creating more videos for that. So look for that. And thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Have a great week. Follow the Robot Podcast on Facebook and Twitter. If you have suggestions for topics on the show or people you'd like us to talk to, let us know. The Robot Podcast is on Stitcher and iTunes, so you should be able to listen to it with any device that you have. Tune in every Friday for new episodes.